0: We're continuing in our journey of understanding how God's Word came to us, and we're looking at the third message here in this, and as I mentioned before, there's a lot of aspects to this that's technical, and I definitely don't want to lose us in the technicality, but I, I do think it's a help to be able to at least walk through this sometime or another in your life. and. While I recognize that most of us here probably accept the Bible is God's word just by faith, and and I do, and, and that's sufficient perhaps for most of us, but there is something about whenever we go back to history and we look and see how it came to us, we can see God's hand in the matter. It doesn't do anything to undermine our faith. It just strengthens our faith because we see how careful God has been in, in taking care of this process to get us the Bible. There's a lot of Bibles, uh, so-called Bibles that exist, a lot of so-called authorities that say that they have received revelation from God. And so the question often is, how do we know which is the right voice, right word? Because the authority is in the Word of God, it's not in man, what man says, it's in God's Word. And the authority that is preached, well, it must be God's authority. And there's a lot of preaching that takes place. There's a lot of people giving their ideas and opinions. But that which changes lives is not man's opinions It's God's word, God's truth, God's authority. So we're just looking at how do we know that we have God's word? How did God's word come to us? And um, we looked at last week, or actually two weeks ago, looked at the first message on the four pillars to having our Bible. And uh, the first one was divine revelation. And divine revelation simply refers to the fact that God's truth was revealed. God revealed a truth to us through His Holy Spirit. And that's very important. It wasn't just conjured up in somebody's idea. God's truth was revealed by His Holy Spirit. Then the second pillar is verbal inspiration. And that's the process that God used to write down the revelation, the truth that was revealed by the Holy Spirit. A key passage is 2 Peter Chapter number one, in which holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so God's word was revealed by the Spirit of God. Paul often talked about the fact that he's giving the message that God gave to him. Well, it was verbally given. It was written down in a process That was very careful over 1,500 years, quite a span of time, several continents, different languages, various men, but men that God chose and they were filled and led by the Spirit of God, verbal inspiration. Verbal means word for word. That's very important because it's not thought inspiration like certain versions that that have followed that. They followed a text that was considered to be uh, thought-inspired versus the text that the King James comes from that was word-for-word verbal-inspired. Plenary verbal, plenary simply means full or all. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all of it is given by inspiration of God, is God-breathed, Is literally the word, one Greek word in 2 Timothy 3.16, theopneustos, one Greek word makes up about five English words, theopneustos, God breathed all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And so um, then providential preservation, preservation. So you have revelation, inspiration, preservation, and this is God's process of preserving, Taking care that no people at any given time has been without the authority of God's Word. All the way back to Adam and Eve. They had what God wanted them to have, His Word. And all the way to now, we have had a preserved Word of God. It was revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. He was careful in the inspiration and them getting it down and then it's been preserved. But then what is required in order for us to get it? Spiritual illumination. Uh, This book can be dry, dead, and boring to one that doesn't have the light bulb turned on in their heart and life. Because it is a living book and it will... Uh, come to it. It is living, but it will bring life as one surrenders and submits to the author of the book, the Holy Spirit of the Living God. Doctor Childs would say often, many writers, only one author, Amen. and that's why we need His illumination for us. And so we talked about that. Then last week we talked about the term canon. Canon comes from the Greek word that has to do with a measuring rod, a rule or a standard. And so when they would measure buildings, they would use a cannon, they would use a reed, they would use a rod. And so the, the Word of God, the Bible, had is known as the, the canonicity of Scripture. What was included in the canon of Scripture? Uh, so here's a question. Was God's Word... Was it recognized as being part of the canon of scripture or was it chosen by certain church leaders to be part of the canon? It was recognized. No one chose God's word to be authoritative. God did that. It's just that there was groups of people throughout time that recognized what was of God and what was not. Uh, a couple other key verses we mentioned was Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 40, verse number 8. And um, then there were certain questions that early church leaders 2,000 years ago would ask to recognize if the, the books that they had, if the letters that they had, if they were to be included in in the canon of scripture. One of the questions they would ask was, did a recognized spokesman of God write the book? In other words, was it Paul? Was it Peter? Was it John? They're looking at someone that was recognized and it wasn't um, this church would pick theirs and this church would pick theirs. It was recognized by all the churches. A second question they would ask is, does the book agree with the true revealed nature, character, and works of God. Does this book agree with with who God is? The third question was did the people of God embrace the book as the Word of God and did they subject themselves to its authority. So they're looking at these circulated letters because that's how the Bible was. It was written on parchment. It wasn't bound in leather like we have it. And they didn't have the divisions like we'd have it. It was one scroll letter and they and these would circulate. But there were also other books and letters that would circulate. So they're trying to determine which ones were of God, which ones were not. And so the most important thing perhaps we talked about was the fact that councils, church councils did not make scripture, scripture. They measured the books by their authority. Their authority was based on inspiration. The inspiration was confirmed by the acceptance of authorship and inspiration um, by all the churches. And so that was the significant aspect. Now, And looking at how do we know for sure that the Bible is the Word of God, we're looking at two verses this evening um, that that I think can help us as we look at the New Testament. How did the New Testament come about? And notice in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, let's go ahead and stand together. We'll look at these two verses. Once we get past tonight's, so we'll move out of the, the technical aspect because I know, again, this, is, this isn't really where, I, I don't know if revival, if I've ever read of a revival occurring because of studying the canonicity of Scripture. But, but it does help us understand the authority by which revival messages are preached. And so we're glad for that. It's good to see Lane back and glad you're back here with us, sir. It's an honor to have you. And Ephesians chapter two, notice verse 19 and 20. And to know the love of Christ, Paul writes, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Just highlighting the phrase, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, the church. The church has been described as several things by the Apostle Paul. And we're gonna look at that. Go back to um, verse number 15. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you according to the, excuse me, I'm in Ephesians three. I said, uh, (laughs) I said two, you're turning pages and, I thought, you Brother Autry's already gotten bored. He's doing his Bible reading over here. Ephesians 3. Eventually you'd get there, right? You just had another chapter to go and you'd be there. Um, Chapter 3, verse number 15. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. Again, he's talking about this inward work, but notice again verse 21, unto him be glory in the church. Now, Go back to chapter 2, verse 19. The real chapter 2 in verse 19. For here he talks about another aspect of the church. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone Amen. in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So let's look at this evening how we get the canon the standard that recognizes the New Testament that we have, the canon of the New Testament. Thank you. Please be seated. Now the point of Scripture here that Paul writes, he's speaking to the church. He talks about the church in chapter 3. But in chapter 2, he's writing to this early church, and he reminds them of their former State Their former spiritual condition. He says they were foreigners, aliens from the power of God, or they were outside of knowing God. They were not part of God's kingdom. They're foreigners as far as the kingdom of God. They were aliens. That is, they're without any spiritual rights. But now, he says, because of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your fellow citizens with God's people, and you're members of God's household. You're members of the family of God. That is what the church is. The church is the family of God. And he says, now you are the family of God. Now notice he says, you're built on a foundation. And so he switches symbols here. He goes from, in chapter 2 and verse 20, you're built upon a foundation. And he uses several symbols in describing what a church is. He said um, over in chapter number 5 of Ephesians, the church is the bride of Christ. And he says, we're to love the church as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The church is the bride of Christ that's why it's it, it is important as as to our relationship to the church. A lot of people especially since covid have developed a mindset of of not even going to church. They don't have to go to church. If I want to go to church, I could just watch church. But that's not a very healthy attitude to have about the bride of Jesus Christ. And so he he talks about this as a Uh, as a bride. He refers to it as a family. But then he says it's like a building. The church is a building. It's built on a foundation. And so what we're looking at here is Paul's writings to the early church. It's the early church writings. That would be what Paul, the New Testament, this is the early church. What does he say about this? he's He's mentioning this building, this foundation, and we think about a foundation. where we're we're talking about another symbol, a bride. We're talking about a body. Now he's talking about a building, and a family doesn't have a foundation, but a building does. The church has a foundation. And what's the foundation of the church, he says that it is built on the foundation, notice what he says, going back to verse twenty. It's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Because it is, there's there's a connecting that he's doing to the authority of the word of God, the authority of God. He says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, it's very important to understand as it relates to the canon of Scripture. And this is important because it tells us why we can't add anything else to this, why we can't take anything away from this. Nothing can be added to the Word of God. Nothing can be taken from the Word of God. And this helps us understand why there can be no further revelation from God Other than that which was given through the apostles and the prophets. See, when God finished giving his revelation of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of this building, to the apostles and to the prophets, revelation ceased. It's done, it's complete, it's finished. And this is why we know that anything that is added to this, anything that is revelation from God that's added to the authority of God, it's heresy. doesn't matter what the council might be. The council of Rome that comes up with extra biblical revelation. That's what it would be. It would be extra biblical revelation but it's not revelation from God. And they will say, what was wrong last year is not wrong this year. Or somebody in a church will stand in a so-called church service will stand and with jibber-jabber, will say that God spoke to them and gave them this word. No, everything that God wanted us to hear and every authoritative divine word, God gave it to us and was completed with what he gave to the apostles and to the prophets. Now, he's saying it must be in agreement with the apostles' teachings and the prophets' teachings. And that's what we talked about last week there in Peter and Peter's writings when he mentioned that the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So he says the church was built on the foundation of what? The apostles, the prophets. He's talking about the apostles and prophets um, as people. The church isn't built on just puny men, but he's talking about what the apostles and the prophets uh, were were proclaiming their authority. The church isn't built on St. Peter, St. Paul, but he's talking about their body of doctrine, their, their authority. If you don't believe it, just read your Bible and you'll find how fallible Peter was. The Bible tells us some pretty bad things about Peter that he wouldn't necessarily want to tell us. The Bible describes some things that are very uh, transparent about the men in the Bible that you and I wouldn't want other people to know about us. So he's letting us know that the Bible is not built upon these men because these were super spiritual men. No, he's telling us that, that these men, they made mistakes and yet they, when they copied, when they wrote what God told them to write, there were no mistakes in their writing because God breathed those words. So he's not saying that the church is built upon these people as saints. He's saying that the church is built upon the writings, the teachings, It's built upon the truth that the apostles and the prophets taught. That's the foundation of the church. In other words, the church is built on truth. That's what he's saying when it says that the foundation of the apostles and prophets, verse 20, Ephesians 2, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The truth is what the apostles and the prophets taught. And that's what we have today. It's the word of God. This is the foundation of the church. There is absolute truth that believers can count on in 2023, and it was the same truth in 1923. It was the same truth in 1723. It'll be the same truth in any age. It never changes. God's Word never changes. Four times in the Gospels, Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word shall never Pass away. It's the truth that is built on the teachings of the apostles and prophets as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Word of God. So when he says the foundation of the apostles and prophets, you can take that to mean the Word of God with Jesus Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone because that was the cornerstone of their teaching, the person of Christ what Christ taught. The cornerstone of their teaching was Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter three, and he talks about the gospel. He says, I delivered unto you, brethren, the gospel, which I also received, how that Christ died, was buried and rose again the third day. And he goes on to say it this way, according to the scriptures. See, the gospel's not just That Christ died, was buried, and resurrected. The gospel is that Christ died, was buried, resurrected according to the scriptures. That's the authority. And that's according to truth. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So he's saying we have a foundation. It's unchangeable. The apostles and the prophets taught this unchangeable truth. And so, when somebody comes along and they try to change it or they try to add to the apostles and the prophets, then we know they're teaching something that's false. They're no longer apostles in the same sense that Paul and Peter were apostles. I know there are church signs that have apostle on there. But do you know one of the requirements, one of the requirements for being an apostle? You had to see the resurrected Jesus. And so nobody living today has seen the resurrected Jesus. That's why it's very significant. God had a plan and a process that protected the canon of scripture. I know some people are running around saying they're apostles, but they didn't see Jesus in the flesh. They didn't hear Jesus teach, but every apostle in the the Bible, they had to have fulfilled that requirement. I'm not an apostle. He's talking here about the prophets who wrote the scripture. There is the gift of prophecy today. I could spend a long time on that. It's active, but that's not the same thing. What I do when I preach the Bible, when I interpret what the Bible is saying and preaching it, is exercising a gift of prophecy. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about the foundation of the prophets that, that was laid, that the church was built upon. And so how does all this relate to the canon of Scripture, especially the New Testament? I'll show you that in a moment. But would you take your Bible and go to Jude? Jude, right before you get to Revelation, there's only one chapter in Jude. Notice in verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence, diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude is saying, I really want to write you an encouraging letter. I wanted want to be positive and uplifting, and I wanted to talk about salvation and all the good that comes with being saved. But now, the whole book of Jude is about guarding against false teachers that had already infiltrated the church. The church from the very beginning had false teachers. And much of the New Testament, it deals with false teaching in the church. I wanna tell you, I don't think we have enough preaching today on the matter of false teaching. It's not very popular. If you teach much on false teaching in the church, then people are gonna criticize you and think that you're you're some other uh, uh, kind of a group protecting your kingdom. But in fact, the New Testament is filled with warnings to people about false teaching. Nobody wants to be told that some preacher they like or some doctrine that they like or some church they like is teaching false doctrine. But it's important because God has given us A standard to go by. And Jude says, I wanted you to contend with the faith for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. You see that? Notice at the end of verse three, I'm exhorting you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, the word faith here is a noun. It's not a verb. Most of the time, many times in your Bible, you'll see the word faith. It's a verb. It means trusting, believing, committing to something. But here, faith is a noun. Contending for the faith. It means the faith that we believe in, the body of truth that we believe in. So he writes to these believers and he says, I want to urge you to contend You're going to have to protect. You're going to have to fight for the body of truth that was what? Once and for all delivered to the saints. It was laid upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And its chief cornerstone was Jesus Christ himself. So that means that there is a faith once and for all delivered to the saints that cannot be added to. It cannot be taken away from. And already in this time, they were having to discern what was scripture, what was not scripture, what was inspired of God, given by God, what was not inspired, given by God. So one of the things they had to do before the Bible could be considered the Bible for the church was to examine the writings of different authors again and again and again. And they're deciding which writings They're not choosing, they're deciding which writings were recognized to be true, which rang true of the teachings of Jesus Christ, which writings they rang true with the Holy Spirit. And John told them to test the spirits, try the spirit. For not every spirit that comes to you is the spirit of God. He says there is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the point that Jude is saying Is that you're going to have to contend. So he's writing to this people in this period of time, 2,000 years ago, and they were part of this process that God used to help us become aware of what is the Bible that we have tonight. But he said, You're going to have to contend. Now, the word contend is a word that means, as I said just a moment ago, it means to struggle, to guard, to protect. You're going to have to guard you're going to have to guard your heart and mind with truth because there's always going to be those who will try and take it away from you. Oh no, now I'm not going to let anybody snatch away truth. We've got so much rolling around and blowing through. You go back to the simplest, simplest of times with just one man and one woman. All they had was God, perfect environment, And yet Satan came into that environment and began to whisper using truth and twisting it just a little bit. You know, you've heard the analogy, you take a a, a container of water and you put just a few drops of poison in it. And how many want to stand in line and be the first to drink it down? Yet we're willing to read, listen, These are good people. I'm such a a persuasive speaker. But if it doesn't line up with truth, we're not doing what Jude said to do 2,000 years ago. We're not contending. We're not guarding. We're not protecting. So he says you've got to contend for the faith, the body of truth. Um, When he says faith there, I I think you can do this. I don't think that you're doing any injustice to the text, but you can put your word Bible there. Contend for your Bible. Guard your Bible, protect the Bible. That's the faith, that's the noun part. Why is it that denominations of which I wanna remind us as a Baptist, we're not a denomination. I know Baptist preachers who say I'm a, my denomination is a Baptist, but we're not a denomination. You know every denomination finds its start somewhere. The the Presbyterians they have a start period. Methodists there was a time that they were started. The Catholic Church, every group. Um, who else is there? Southern Baptists. There was a start period of the Convention of the Southern Baptist. Even you say, well, where did we come from? Um, Jesus Christ. I don't know if that went over so well. We go all the way back to Jesus Christ. What Jesus taught is what we hold to. Remember, the chief cornerstone of the foundation is Jesus Christ. What did the apostles and the prophets teach? What did the prophets of the Old Testament teach? preach and teach, they preached and taught Jesus who is to come. And the apostles preached and they taught Jesus who had come. And so we trace back our very teaching, our very roots to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some, some would call us Protestants. No, we were protesting long before the reformers ever did protest. We, we were around long before the dark ages. In fact, the reformers that, that have done good for religion, many of the reformers put Baptists to death. And so the Baptists have been around since the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus baptized by? And not John the Sprinkler. It was John the Baptist baptizing and so, but now go back to my statement. There have been many denominations of our day and yesteryear that have died and are dying. Why? Because they've allowed what they believed to be relevant at that moment, they've allowed it into their body of teaching and doctrine and it begins to corrode and and, and eat away. And so you've got all these groups and bodies, denominations, the Methodists will split and you've got a conservative group and the liberal group and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and now the Southern Baptists are doing much the same and they're, they're breaking up. What are they breaking up over? Because these groups would say they would take a position on the Bible, but then over time, because of relevance within the society that they live, they would begin to ordain homosexual priests and homosexual bishops. And then they would begin to ordain women preachers. Just read where the Southern Baptist ousted Rick Warren because of ordaining women preachers and so they began to and someone says was well, there a problem with women preachers well Paul says a woman who is a or one who is a preacher a bishop a pastor is to be the husband of one wife and so that's just one of many things and and so what happens is slowly 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 satan adds to and satan takes away and what happens is these bodies and groups of people who ought to be looking to the authority of God's Word and earnestly contending. What they do is they let society influence them and they begin to to cut away and change here. If I had the um, the wherewithal uh, to do what Brother Freddie Spry would do, take another book and cause you to think it's a Bible. And Brother Freddie would tear out a page here and tear out a page there. Oh, this doesn't mean anything to you. And many people would be just aghast to say, how could you tear a page out of the Bible? Well, that's what these groups are doing when they no longer contend for the faith that was given to us, divinely given to us, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit of the living God. This is not a man made Book. If man wrote this book, it wouldn't say the things that it says about man. It wouldn't say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It wouldn't tell us that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. If man, just man wrote this, it wouldn't say in Hebrews chapter 13, marriage is honorable and all and the bad is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will personally judge judge. And what I'm saying is, is what Judas say is that this once and for all authority of truth has been delivered. Now it's our responsibility to contend for this Bible, for this body of truth. Once very effective men and groups and churches preaching the gospel. Now they favor gay marriage. How did they get that way? Not overnight. They just stopped contending for the faith. Oh, that's the problem with y'all. Y'all just don't love everybody. No, God loves the entire world and he still died for the sin of homosexuality. He died for the sin of adultery. Jesus died in order that he might forgive, that he might deliver people from such sin. And you say, well, you just don't, You're not going to win people that way. We're not going to win people by telling them that they're fine the way they are. And by the way, and someone may have misunderstood William's prayer and the offering. Lord, we we want to, we want Newton County to be ours. He's not talking about on our team He was was praying to the Lord. We want to see Newton County for Jesus Christ. People who take their last breath in Newton County, they may have religion, but unless they have a real living relationship with Jesus, if they take their last breath tonight, they're going to die and spend an eternity in hell. Hell that was never designed by God for us. It was designed and prepared for the devil and his angels. But if you reject God's love, if you reject, reject God's gift for what you think is relevant and what you want to settle for you must reject God and you must take the alternative and so he's praying William was praying what we ought to be praying. God, we want to see you move. We want to see you work. And, and, but I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I'd rather hurt your feelings and you get saved and miss hell and spend an eternity with God than to protect your feelings and lie to you and tell you you're okay in the sin that put Jesus on the cross. I would be careful before I ever make fun of Jesus dying on the cross. Well, I wouldn't make fun of Jesus. If you will condone your sin, then you're making a of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And so Jude writes, you need to contend for it. You don't need to decide whether or not it's true. God gave it, it's given by God, you contend for it. Now, that's what he writes about. And we need to go back and understand how our forefathers died for their faith. Our forefathers died for the Bible. They died for the truth of scripture. Those who came to America. It, it's pathetic how our history is being rewritten. I don't have time to go into that. My mind's wanting to take different roads, but I, want to, stay, I want to stay on track. Our forefathers braved the seas, came to this land because they didn't want the state church. They didn't want, they didn't want to be told how they had to worship. Because they understood that's not the way God designed it. And so they came to this country and they started here so that they could worship God according to their own conscience. And then we had a a rough start in the beginning and fell into some of the same things that they left. But what they're simply doing was trying to contend for the faith. And as I already mentioned, many of the early Baptists died because they believed in Baptism. There were many during the, uh, the Reformation period where they said to these Baptists, oh, you like baptism, do you? And they'd strap them into a chair and they would dunk them into the water until they drowned them, mocking them. Now, the point is, well, how did they decide about this New Testament that we have and how does all this tie into getting there? First of all, when you went to the church in the first century, and that's the time that we would be reading about here in our New Testament. They didn't have a building like this. You didn't recognize there's a church, there's a steeple. They didn't have buildings. It might have been a house. It might have been outside somewhere in somebody's backyard. But first of all, you had the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament had been translated into Greek because everyone in that first century spoke Greek. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because the Old Testament was written in what language? Hebrew. And so they translated it into Greek and they called it what? The Septuagint. So it was the Old Testament translated into Greek so every Jew could read and understand it. And they continued just like they did. In the Old Testament days, or in the, the early days of, um, of Christ, where they would teach out in the synagogue the Old Testament. It was the only Bible they had, the Old Testament. And then they began in the early church, they had the oral teaching. That is, they heard the apostles. They heard Paul preach and teach. And then they would pass that on by word of mouth. And so they passed on the story of Christ. And they passed on the doctrines of faith. And from place to place, house to house, time to time, they continued to pass down the teachings of the apostles. And can you imagine what kind of thrill it was if one of those apostles showed up at one of their meetings? Paul showed up. Peter showed up. That missionary would come and teach the faith. And of course, people began to write down those things and things that they heard. And then Paul began to write his letters. And some of the earliest writings they had were the writings of the Apostle Paul. He was a prolific writer and his writings began to be passed around to all the churches. And of course, Paul's writings were to encourage new believers, teach the new believers the doctrines of the faith. We just went through Galatians. What was he doing in the book of Galatians? He's dealing with false teaching. And he's helping young believers, young churches, understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The same one who's given us our Bible, the same one who moves inside of you when you get saved and you can understand why God put you here on this earth. And so that's what was happening. In that early church, and so number one, early church writings. That's a long ways to get around that, but you got that, all right. So take out a piece of paper and a pen, and we're going to do a test on this. No, we're not. Moving on to second century. The second century, they had the four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It wasn't too many years into the second century that they had all four gospels they could read. And the church then, as they met from place to place, time to time, they examined those documents and the letters of Paul and the letters of John. And now they had the gospels and letters of John and Paul. Not everything received acceptance. At first, some churches accepted this many books and they rejected that many books. One of the books that they had a problem with in the second century was the book of Hebrews. The only reason they had a problem with the book of Hebrews is they were uncertain about its authorship because it doesn't say in the book of Hebrews this book was written by. And so some thought Paul wrote it, others thought Apollos wrote it, and others thought someone else wrote it. And so because of this, they were unsure of who wrote it. They were unsure if they should accept it As scripture or not And of course finally it was accepted Into the canon of scripture Gradually, gradually, gradually Each book by its own merit And by the guidance of the spirit of God As he spoke to the people Took its place in the accepted canon Of the new testament of scripture As they recognized The authority given to it by God Now, when you begin to think about the ancient world And how different it was from today They didn't have communication lines Like we do It's really remarkable how quickly acceptance of these books of the New Testament found their way into the church all across the known world. Travel was slow, communication uh, was not the best, and yet it was miraculous how the Holy Spirit led and preserved the unity and the message of the Scripture, the faith, the Word of God in a church in Jerusalem, the church in Ephesus, the church in Antioch, They were basically all teaching the exact same thing. And of course, there were councils at that time. And when they sent their elders to a certain place, elders would discuss the scripture and they would discuss the teachings. And they would come to agreement on which teachings were in line with the teachings of Christ. And this was the process by which they decided which scripture belonged in the New Testament based upon the recognition that was given. Now, when you get to the 2nd century, that's the 100s. And you move down to the 3rd century, that would be the 200s. They discovered a fragment of Scripture. It dates to about 150 A.D. A Bible scholar discovered this fragment of Scripture in the 18th century, and it included the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, Thirteen letters of Paul, Jude, two letters of John and Revelation. So by the middle of the second century, by the way, John the Apostle, he died in about 99 AD. About 50 years later, they had the same Bible that you and I have today. And that's remarkable that we can discover that doesn't necessarily do anything, but just, it just shows that we can go so far back and see how scripture was preserved. And just to think about the miracle of God preserving that fragment of his word, it doesn't add to the authority. It just shows us what they had. And essentially the same wording that we have today. Now we move to the third century Origin. The third century, probably the most outstanding scholar that theologians mention would be Origen. And he provided many lists of the New Testament canon. And during his career, he provided lists that were different, that included different books. But when it was all said and done, he finally provided a list of 27 books that we have today in our New Testament. And so the significance to me is that the same New Testament we have today is the same New Testament that was accepted by the 3rd century church. No other religious organization could say that. No other religious organization has any books that could go back and be verified as much as the Word of God can. That's why I say to you that studying how the Bible came about to me, it strengthens faith and God and confidence and, and how God is careful and meticulous to honor and take care of His word. By the way, this is the authority. What you hold in your lap is the authority? Because it's God's divine word. Number four, we get to the fourth century, Eusebius. He was a great church historian and he was a famous church historian, and he distinguished three categories of books that he considered to be in Scripture, and it included the four Gospels, Acts, 13 letters of Paul, including Hebrews, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. And then he said there was a group that was recognized by the majority of churches. That's James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John. And then he said there's a group of books that is to be rejected. And uh, he listed those books and we mentioned some of that before. And so you see how the list of books continue to be similar. They continue to be very consistent from century to century. And so what, what, what I'm saying is that these church scholars and historians, they're just simply recognizing what the previous century and previous scholars had done. And you see how it's done. It was done carefully, yet organically. Um, When Jesus was alive, what he taught, what the apostles taught, when the apostles passed off, uh, the same what he had given by inspiration through them, God meticulously cared for. And also in the fourth century, Athanasius of Alexandria, he published the 27 books that the church accepted in his area in Egypt. And these are the same books. 27 books that you and I have today in our New Testament. So by the 4th century, there's a general consensus that was reached and being practiced and that in churches in the 4th century, the same New Testament they had is the same New Testament that you and I have. Now let me say this again. The church never controlled the canon of Scripture. But the canon of Scripture by God's design, is to control the church. The church did not create the scripture. The scripture created the church. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. And although divine authority was attributed to the New Testament books by later church councils, this authority of the word of God was never derived from church councils. It was inherent in the books themselves. And that's the point I want you to understand. Rather than saying to you, these are the historical councils that met and declared, these are the books of the Word of God. No, what we're simply saying is the Old Testament when we say canon, again, we're talking about the body of Scripture, considered to be the Word of God. These measuring uh, devices, this rod, these, this criteria is what they went by to simply recognize that which God had already given and God inspired. No council, no church ever established the Bible. The Bible it was to establish churches So you can be sure that if you hold a Bible in your hand, the King James Bible in the English, You're holding the very teachings, the very scriptures written by the apostles of our Lord, the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. There's no doubt the Bible that we hold is the very word of God. It's an amazing, an amazing, miraculous, amazing book. And I know that you appreciate the sacrifice even more as I do and the power and the wonder that God displayed in in giving and presenting. Preserving such a miraculous and transformational book. Don't let it just sit. Don't ignore it. Don't, don't put it aside. Read it. Learn it. Love it. So that you can live it. But stand together, please.